Well, we're still in our family series, taking a break from our uh, series in Matthew. Uh, we will get back to Matthew 16 in a while, but uh, uh, we've just taken this break to t- discuss the family and uh, different aspects of the family. And the way we've started this whole series is by really a three-part um, the discussion of the biblical story of the family, the biblical story of the family. It is helpful to look at the scriptures and look from Genesis to Revelation and to get the broad 30,000-foot level view of what does God's view of the family look like, and does it change, or does it shift, or is it consistent throughout? Um, and again, we, we want to do this, and we want to do this series in particular so that we have a right view of the family, and that those uh, of us who are up-and-coming uh, young families, we have uh, the, the right principles by which to operate and go by. So let's remind ourselves where we've been so far in this story, this biblical story of the family. We started with the family and creation, Genesis really one through four-ish, one through five. And uh, I'll just remind you of the conclusions that we came from uh, uh, in each of these segments. So the family and the creation, we said this, the foundational family unit, the foundational family unit from the beginning is the marriage of one man and one woman. The marriage of one man and one woman. They are one flesh and one family together apart from any offspring. And yet, normally, usually, uh, they're going to produce offspring. They're going to have children. And that is part of God's design for mankind uh, to be uh, to produce, to multiply image bearers in the world, to be steward rulers to, for the purpose of glorifying God. And in the midst of that, there is unity and diversity. There's two genders and only two genders. There's diversity there. Uh, and there's diversity even in having children, but they are, um, there's diversity, but there's also unity in that. And that is intentional because man and mankind and the family is a part of image-bearing God. And God himself, as we find out later through the scriptures, is a divine family, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And even in mankind's relationships in the family, in that unity and diversity, that's part of imaging God, glorifying God in those relationships. And uh, in the uh, midst of all of that, uh, as, as Adam and Eve were to be image bearers, they were to pass that knowledge, and what does that look like onto their children? So there's training involved there. And in all of this, it's God's design for the family is central to what it means to be human and to honor God. This is mankind's fundamental uh, uh, operations, relationships. What is it all for? The family is for God's glory, working together as stewardship rulers in the world uh, to, uh, to, to retask it, to reshape creation, to do things, to, to work in the world, ultimately for God's glory. But then that moves us into the family in the fall. It didn't stay that way for long. And in fact, the subversion of the family order resulted in the fall. As the beast of the field, the satanically empowered serpent, went after Eve. So instead of her being a complimentary helpmate to her husband, she stepped out of that authority and... Uh, we have the subversion of the family order in the fall. And, it's, and, and then immediately from that, we see that the fall results in sinful relationships and dysfunction within the family. So in chapter 2, at the end, Adam is loving his wife. He's caring for his wife. He has that, um, that, that, that mindset of a benevolent um, leader. And yet, what do we see after the fall? He is blaming her. He's blame-shifting uh, automatically because the fall not only... Uh, the, the fall resulted from a subversion of family order, but then from the fall we have sinful relationships and dysfunction within the family. And yet, even in the midst of that, God still refer- affirms 
the family order, the family order. A husband is leading the family in a loving and sacrificial way. That's what he's supposed to do. The wife is coming alongside as a complementary helpmate, and they are raising children together to be image bearers of God. And even in the midst of this, there's the promise, the promise of the male offspring of the woman in Genesis 3.15, who will crush the head of the serpent. And so intertwined with the family is this hope of restoration for the whole world, which drives all those genealogies in Genesis and in the rest of the Bible as a whole. Then last week, we looked at the family and Israel, the family and Israel. As things unfold, God works through a particular family. He works through Abraham's family, such that, if you remember Genesis 12, 1 through 3, that through this family, blessing is to come to all the nations of the world, all the families of the ground. So God is working through a particular family for all the families of the world. And we saw, as we looked at Israel, we saw that, uh, this, that, that same family order from creation has continued. Uh, fathers have a primary role in training their children and mothers have an indispensable role in that as well, and children of all ages are to honor their parents. It's the same family order. And we even talked about what's the content of that training, the content as um, parents pass on to the next generation training, and uh, what, what are they supposed to pass on? Well, we saw in Genesis 18 when God spoke to Abraham, it's the way of Yahweh to do righteousness and justice. In Deuteronomy 6, it's the commandments of God, motivated not just out of mere duty, but out of grace for what God has done for his people. It's also the, in Psalm 78, we saw that the content of training was also the praises of Yahweh, the praises of God and his power and the wonders he has done, the magnificent deeds he has done. It's God's instruction in his word more generally, all of the word and all of the ways of Yahweh. And it's also from the book of Proverbs, we can see that it's wisdom, that you're supposed to pass on wisdom to the next generation. How do you live in the fear of God and a proper relationship to God and live wisely in his world? And what's the purpose of it all? What's the purpose of the training? Well, we saw this in Psalm 78, 7 through 8. It's confidence. It's confidence in God. Confidence not in self, which is what the natural human condition after the fall is, is confidence in self. But no, this training is supposed to produce confidence, or what we could say is faith and hope in God himself, the only one who can rescue. And what we also see through the history of Israel is that repeated failure to train children, whether you're talking about the nation more broadly or even more specifically with the kings, the failure to train the next generation, the failure to train the children in the ways of Yahweh, had devastating consequences for Israel. Really, in some sense, you could point to that as a major, if not the major reason, Israel keeps going through these cycles of some obedience, and then the next generation is disobedience, that failure of training the next generation in the ways of the Lord. And yet, even Malachi, by the end of the Old Testament, he says, there's going to come a day there's going to come a day when the fathers are going to turn towards their children and their children towards their fathers, and there's going to be restoration. So that's what we've seen so far. Well, now we turn. We turn to the New Testament, and we're going to look at two things. We're going to look at the family and Jesus. What does Jesus have to say about the family? And really, what do the, what do the Gospels have to say about the family? And then we're going to look at the church and the family. Really, what does the rest of the New Testament have to say about the family? And I would start you, as we turn to Jesus in the family, I would start you with the birth of Jesus himself. Turn to Matthew 1. Just so you know, we are going to, you've noticed this already as we've gone through this storyline of Scripture. We're hitting highlights, so we're, 
we're moving from Scripture to Scripture to Scripture to kind of see the picture, the broad picture, the arcs of what God is doing. So that's going to be true of today as well. But Matthew 1.18, we did this in our, um, several months ago, over a year ago, um, as we started Matthew. But I want you to think about it from the angle of family, uh, the angle of family. So we get the genealogy of Jesus, which completes the genealogies of the Old Testament. But then we get this, Matthew 1.18, Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, so they haven't come together yet, but they're as good as come together. They're as good as a marriage in that culture and at that time. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he, considered the, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what God had spoken through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Really, that genealogy, and even here, what we see is this is the one that was promised in Genesis 3.15. This is the serpent-crushing seed of the woman, the offspring uh, not only of Abraham, but of David. That's what the genealogy shows. And even in the way the birth is happening, a virgin conception, uh, not, uh, uh, no human father involved, but yet a human of offspring of the woman to do what? To save people from their sins to ultimately crush the head of the serpent, to restore things to the way they wanted. So here we see that that element that's been the promise throughout all of the Old Testament, that hope of that one, now it's come, and it comes in the context of a family, in the, fa- in the context of a family. And not just uh, the family where Jesus is born, but also we see here the dynamic with Joseph, or they're already promised together, and yet what does Joseph effectively have to do? What does God task him to do? He essentially tasks him become this one's adopted father, his earthly father on earth, and this one is raised, Jesus is raised, the serpent-crushing seed of the woman is raised in the context of an earthly family. You can even think uh, later about Luke 2. Uh, You see that glimpse when Jesus is 12 and he goes into the temple and he's lost for a few days, and uh, and, uh, Mary and Joseph are like, hey, why did you do this to us? And what does Jesus eventually do? He submits to them. He comes back with them. It's, you see some of those family dynamics. God works through the family. And that's what we've seen from the beginning. Paul reflects on this as we think about uh, this one coming through the family, the Savior of the world, the one who will save people from their sins. Paul gives us a reflection on this in Galatians. Turn to Galatians 4. And you see the perspective of this. Galatians 4, 4 through 5, we see this, Paul says this, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, so the son from all eternity, God the son from the divine family, but then he becomes born of woman, born under the law, to do what? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. 
This one, this one coming through this, his own, uh, from the family from all eternity, and yet in a, a human adopted family on earth, he's the one that's going to restore the world. He's going to restore the human family. You can see another aspect of Paul's reflection on this in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, and this stretches back to Genesis as well. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45. Paul's talking about death and the resurrection, and in the midst of that, he says this in verse 45 in 1 Corinthians 15. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust, and as the man of heaven so also are those of heaven. Just as we have borne the image, key language, of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. How did God design the family from the beginning? To be uh, humankind, humans are to be God's image bearers for his glory in the world. We see the breaking of that in the fall, and yet the virgin conception happened. Why? So that now we've got a new Adam. We have the last Adam such that we can be conformed to this one's image and fulfill that promise of and purpose for humankind. And you're going to see that shift, the shift that Paul just mentioned there in 1 Corinthians 15. Everything so far in the Old Testament has focused on the natural family, the biological family. That's how God's working. But now with Jesus, the virgin-born Jesus, the God eternal incarnated as Jesus, now he's going to start working through a spiritual family. And that's what unfolds as we look through the Gospels and as we look through Jesus' ministry, as we look through Jesus' ministry. Now, remember how the Old Testament ended. Remember that promise of that one who's going to turn the fathers, Elijah's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of children to the fathers. Well, as things unfold in the Gospels, that's what we see. That's what happens with Jesus' forerunner, with John. Look at Luke. Look at Luke 1, 16. And you start to see that promise unfold. Remember the, the distance, the generation gap, so to speak, in the Old Testament, the failure to train caused Israel's woes, and yet you see at least some of that being reversed with the ministry of John. Luke 1, 16 and 17, Zechari uh, Gabriel's talking here, to Zechariah, John's father, and says this, and he, this is John the Baptist, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, here it is, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So you see this turning point in the ministry of John, in the ministry of Jesus, the whole hope for the restoration of Israel is... Uh, is begun, is started. But what's interesting, what's interesting in this, and we've already begun to catch a glimpse of it, is that there's a shift. There's a shift in God's working from the natural family to the spiritual family. Even as John speaks and does his ministry, turn back to Mar uh, Matthew, Matthew 3, like I said, we're bouncing around. Um, but what you see is even this element of family and natural connection and natural biological relation, even though God has been working through 
a natural family, the family of Abraham, to bless all the families of the ground. Notice what John says, Matthew 3, Matthew 3, starting in verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And what you see there is what's going to be continued through John's ministry and through Jesus' ministry is just because you're part of the right family, just because you're raised the right way, just because you have this connection even with Abraham's family, which God was working through, doesn't mean that you're children of God. Doesn't mean that you're children of God. And you can see that from Jesus' own lips. Turn to John 3. John, uh, as Jesus is talking to the preeminent teacher of Israel, Nicodemus, Jesus, from his own lips, states this dynamic that just because you're part of a natural family that knows God doesn't mean you know God or are part of God's family. Well, then what's the issue then? Well, Jesus pegs it in John 3, 1 through 8. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again or born from above, the same word for either one, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again or born from above. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, look, you want to come into the kingdom of God? You want to be part of God's family? Then you need to be born from above. God needs to birth you from above. You have a natural family. You may even be part of the family of Abraham, the, father, uh, the, the, the family of Israel, but that doesn't mean you're getting in. You can have all the family connections, but that doesn't mean you're getting in. That doesn't mean you're part of God's family. You have to be born again, which means that the Spirit of God has to work in your heart and regenerate you from your deadness, that is because you're connected with Adam, because you're connected with Adam and you're dead spiritually, the Spirit of God needs to regenerate your heart so that you can enter God's family. Turn back a page or two to John 1, and you can see it there. How does this happen? John 1, talking about Jesus and talking in language uh, about the Word, who's always existed, becoming man, and in the midst of all of this, we get John 1, 12 through 13, but to all who did receive him, that's the word, that's Jesus, the one who came to save his people from their sins, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. 
You're not part of God's family just because you have the right natural family, the right natural family connections. God needs to regenerate your heart through the Holy Spirit so that what? You can entrust yourself to the serpent-crushing seed of the woman, to Jesus, who came to save his people from their sins by dying on a cross and rising again in their place. That's how you become part of the family of God. So there's a shift. You see the shift. The shift from the focus on the natural family to the focus on the spiritual family. The focus on being connected with Adam to being focused on the connection with the last Adam, the sinless one, the one who saved his people from their sins, the one creating a new humanity, Jesus Christ. And this family, this family takes ultimate precedence, bar none. You can see how Jesus says this in Matthew 10. We've over the months, we've gone through Matthew, and we've seen this, and you remember these, but let's just revisit them briefly. Matthew 10, Jesus is equipping his disciples to go out and proclaim the message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Repent, turn your allegiance from sin and self, and entrust yourself to who? The king, to Jesus, the one who's saving his people from their sins. But notice what Jesus says, and he doesn't pull any punches in Matthew 10. Look at verses 21 through 22. Here's his disciples, those who have repented, who have entrusted themselves to Jesus, who know him. And what does Jesus say about his followers, those who have entrusted themselves to him and are following him? Verse 21 in Matthew 10, brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father, his child and children will rise up against their parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my namesake, for the, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Skip down to verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What Jesus is saying is, if you're going to follow me, and your allegiance is to me, then that allegiance has no higher allegiance, even than the family, even than the natural family. And we see that continued, even in the text that Steve read for us this morning. Matthew 12, 46. We see it with Jesus' own family. He applies that principle to his own family. Matthew 12, 46. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother, that's Jesus' mother, and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. What is Jesus saying? He's saying closer than natural family is the family of faith, the family who has repented and entrusted themselves to Jesus and is following Jesus. That is the closest family to Jesus, and hence the closest family to each other. And that's what Jesus accomplished in his death and resurrection, is the payment for sins of his people, of his family. 
and rising again in their place. And you can see a beautiful snapshot of this in John 20, right after the resurrection, right in the garden of, uh, right in the garden of the tomb, right after he is raised. And Mary, he's talking to Mary Magdalene. And right after he reveals himself, but notice what Jesus says. So he has accomplished his work on the cross. He has paid the penalty of sin for those who would entrust themselves to him. And he's risen again. He showed that he's paid that penalty. But notice the immediate result in John 20, 17. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Listen to this. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. That is what Jesus' death and resurrection accomplished, is a new family, a new family connected through Jesus. That's why you get all the brother-sister language in the New Testament, right? You've got Paul talking about brothers and sisters. Well, that's because that's what Jesus did on the cross, a new human family, not connected with Adam, but now through faith connected with Jesus, the last Adam, the sinless one, the one who is the true image bearer of God to multiply new image bearers through faith in Christ. So you might think, hearing of all of that and hearing that shift, now we've got to shift from the natural family to the, uh, to the spiritual family in Jesus, you might think, well, does the family just end? Is We don't need to pay attention to it anymore. And you might think that, but no, not at all. The natural family is still held very high, even by Jesus. Turn back to Matthew 15, and you can see this. Yes, Jesus is creating the spiritual family of his disciples, such that they are all brothers and sisters through faith. But notice what he says in Matthew 15, 3, and we looked at this a few weeks ago, and he's disputing with the Pharisees and the scribes, but he says this, as he's talking to them, Matthew 15, 3, he answered them, and why do you, now they, they've got their tradition, and he's saying, you guys are elevating your tradition over against God's word. Notice what he says. He answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. And for our purposes, what do we see here? No, Jesus is still holding high that as part of the natural family, you still honor as a child your father and mother. So even what Jesus has come to do, even as he's creating a new spiritual family, he does not denigrate the natural family. It's just that it doesn't hold ultimate allegiance. Still honor your family, your natural family, but it doesn't hold ultimate allegiance. Jesus does. The family of Jesus does. You can see this also in relation to marriage. Marriage is the core. It's the foundation of a family, even apart from offspring. A man, one man and one woman coming together in covenant before God as witness. And listen to what Jesus talks about marriage in Matthew 19. Matthew 19. Again, he's talking to the Pharisees and disputing with them. And listen to what he says, Matthew 19, 3. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him, asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Notice what the disciples say. The disciples said to him, well, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been made so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. But you see what Jesus is doing. He's still upholding high marriage. Still got the same purpose. It's still got the same nobility that it had from creation. He's linking it back to creation. He still holds it high. He still holds the natural family high. It just doesn't have ultimate allegiance. Only the faith of Jesus, only the family of faith that's in Jesus does. And in fact, we get one more thing from the Gospels about the natural family that we want to look at, Matthew twenty-two thirty. He's talking to the Sadducees. You remember this. We've, there was this uh, woman, and she was married, and then she ended up having seven husbands after one died right after another. So in the resurrection, who's, the, who's, the, uh, who's going to be married, right? You're going to have polygamy in heaven if you do this. And Jesus says this in Matthew twenty-two thirty, which gives us a glimpse of the final finality of the purpose of the natural family. Verse 30, Matthew 22, for in the resurrection, so we're talking the new heavens and the new earth, when everything is done, when the purposes of God are done, in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Meaning what? The natural family and the purpose of the natural family comes to an end. Because marriage is the foundation of the natural family, and marriage is done at death. And once you get to the resurrection, yeah, you may have family members, and praise God, you will have family members that are in heaven with you, but that's actually not the family anymore, because it's the family of faith that is left. It's only the family of faith. The purpose, the purpose of the natural family comes to an end and there's only one family in heaven, the family of faith, those who have repented and placed their faith in Christ. So what do we learn from all of this? This is what we want to do. We take a segment, and we want to draw some conclusions from it. So what conclusions can we draw from Jesus' view of the family? Well, we can say this. God's plan and value for the natural family still holds true in this age. The natural family is still, and the purposes for it, they're consistent, They've been consistent throughout. Jesus still holds it high, and so we need to still hold it high in this age. We can also say this. Natural family connections don't mean you're part of God's family. Or just to say it pretty clearly, just because you're raised in a Christian family doesn't make you a Christian. We can see that. It was true of Israel. It's true of Christianity. Just because you have the right connections or even are part of a good family or have a good family upbringing doesn't mean that you're part of God's family. You cannot assume the new birth. As soon as you assume the new birth for your family, it's over. 
Jesus doesn't assume the new birth. He didn't assume it with Nicodemus, even though he was a preeminent teacher of Israel. You need to be born again or born from above. You need God and only God to take the initiative to regenerate your heart so that you can have faith in Jesus Christ. That's true of children that are raised in a Christian home. You can't assume just because you raise them as well as you could possibly do that they are Christians because they need to be born from above. God needs to take the initiative and regenerate their hearts. Now, he uses means, and he uses the means of faithful parents to do that, but each person, every person, must repent and have faith to be part of God's family. And we can say this as well, and we've said it already, the family of discipleship, the family of the disciples of Christ transcends the natural family. God still holds, Christ still holds the, 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 the natural family highly. The purposes for it are still consistent, but yet there is a transcendent family. The family of discipleship in Christ transcends the natural family. The natural family is going to come to an end. So your child or your parents uh, that might be with you in heaven, in the resurrection, you're going to call them brother and sister because you are part of the family of Christ, because that is the transcendent family. It's Christ's family that will populate the new heavens and the new earth. So we've seen the family and Jesus in the Gospels primarily. Well, what about the rest of the New Testament? What do we have to say about the family? So let's talk about the family and the church, the family and the church. And this is right in line with the Gospels, obviously, but we see a couple other key scriptures that we want to visit. And let's start off with Romans, Romans 8. And we already heard Paul talk about the reality of being redeemed in Christ is couched in the language of adoption, a very familial idea. And we kind of see an expanded version of that in Romans 8, starting in verse 14. I'm going to read extensively here because you need to, again, we get a picture of that shift from the natural family to the family that's in Christ. Romans 8.14 says this, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits for e with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know after, that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. 
And he who knows the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Meaning what? Why do I read all of that? Because that's what coming to faith in Christ is. You were adopted. And even that, we know in Christ we have that adoption, and yet it's not to its, its fullest extent. Notice what Paul said there. The fullest extent and experience, the full experience of that adoption in Christ won't happen until what? Until the resurrection, until the renewal of creation, until the new heavens and the new earth. And there we will have Christ as our older brother, with him as the image, the new Adam to which we are conforming our image as that family of faith with us all being brothers and sisters together. But you see how all of this perfectly correlates with what's going on in Genesis. What did God do at the beginning? He created image bearers to rule over creation to do what? To bring him glory and honor. Adam failed. Now we've got a new Adam in Christ who's the head of the new human family such that they can fulfill the purpose they had from the beginning through adoption. How does adoption happen? Through faith in Christ. How does that happen? Through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit at work in your life, new birth, as Jesus talked about in John 3. This is the family. This is the family going forward. This is the family that God is working through, the family of the church. And you're like, well, what about uh, being fruitful and multiplying? Isn't that part of the original uh, part of the family, you know, to, to have offspring, to have kids, to multiply image bearers on the face of the earth? Absolutely. And what form does that take now? Turn to Colossians. Turn to Colossians. This is amazing language. Paul is talking to the church at Colossae. And he starts in his greeting, Colossians 1.3. And I want you to listen, keep your ear out for some familiar language. Colossians 1.3 says this, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith... In Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which is the message of uh, who God is, our sinfulness, and that we can be reconciled to God through Christ's death and resurrection, through repentance and faith. But notice this. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? As it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Paul is intentionally alluding to the language of bearing fruit and multiplying, and he's saying, how's it happening now? How's it happening now? How does bearing fruit and multiplying happen now in Christ? Through the gospel. Through the gospel. Through the new birth. Bearing fruit and multiplying as a humanity happens now in Christ, the new Adam, as the gospel goes forth. God, someone hears the, the, the word of truth, the gospel, 
And then through that means, he regenerates through his Holy Spirit to bring in new children into his family. And what is that doing? It's bearing fruit and multiplying. And the purposes for humanity are fulfilled, but now, now they're primarily fulfilled through the proclamation of the gospel. That's how bearing fruit and multiplying happens now, through proclaiming the gospel and have um, God working so that more children are adopted into his family. Again, you might say, well, then what about the natural family? Is it done? Is it over with? Not at all, because just like with Jesus, Paul says, no, we hold the natural family very highly. Turn to Ephesians 5. We'll spend more time here next week as we talk about roles in the family a little bit more deeply. But Ephesians 5, 22 through 6, 4, um, the second half of Ephesians, Paul is really talking about, okay, here's the first half of Ephesians, he talks about, here's our identity in Christ. Here's what it means to be in Christ. And then the second half of Ephesians, he's like, okay, that's who you are in Christ. How do you live it out? What does that look like? And so part of how that looks like is what we get in Ephesians 5, 22 through 6, 4, which is the family, the natural family. Ephesians 5, 22 Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And what do you see in all of that? You see the same exact order from creation through Israel into the New Testament in Christ. The same exact order. Husbands are to lead their families in a loving and nourishing uh, and kind and good way. Wives are to submit to their husbands to come alongside them and help them as they lead the family. Uh, children are still supposed to honor and obey their parents and even Paul invokes the promise given in the Ten Commandments and applies that to the children in the New Covenant who do so. And fathers are still supposed to be, they're supposed to be the primary instructors of children. It's all the same. It's the same from Genesis to Revelation, the purpose and the order in the natural family. God still works through it. Notice some of the differences, though. Now you're doing it as a family in Christ. And you're doing it even, you get to model as a husband and wife, that core of the marriage, to model the relationship between Christ and his church. It's done in Christ. It's motivated by Christ. It's motivated by what Christ has done for his church, his bride. 
but it's the same basic relationship. The family is still the, uh, one of the most powerful tools for discipleship. Did you see that there for fathers? Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Yes, the natural family, as fathers who know the Lord, they're still supposed to train their children in the ways of the Lord, the ways of Yahweh, the ways of Christ. There's still that responsibility there because the natural family, even though it's not ultimate, is still an amazingly powerful vehicle for discipleship, for instruction in the Lord. The natural family is still held high. Take you to one more place where this is seen, 1 Timothy 5. Even as, you know, early in 1 Timothy, in 1 Timothy 3, Paul talks about how the church is the family of God. It's the pillar and the buttress of truth. Yet later, later in 1 Timothy, Paul says this to Timothy, and by extension to the church in Ephesus, 1 Timothy 5.3, Honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household, and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplication and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command and teach, command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his household, let, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. What do you see there? The, the, the family of the church, the family of disciples of Christ, the family of faith is ultimate, but that doesn't mean you get to neglect your natural family. You still have a responsibility. The natural family is held high, even though it's still not ultimate, even though the church takes ultimate precedence. So what do we learn from this, from the family and the church? And as we draw this whole story, the biblical story of the family to the close, let's, let's draw some conclusions. First, redemption in Christ is understood as adoption into God's family. The culmination, the papers, so here's the reality about adoption. Lord willing, Ashley and I will go through this. You're, you get matched, you get paired, um, you know, you sign all the paperwork and whatever else, but you don't, you haven't picked up the child yet. You have to like fly to where the child is to go pick him up. Well, the adoption papers have all been signed if you're in Christ but the pickup hasn't happened yet. That happens at the resurrection, in that fullness yet. We're waiting for that as children in Christ. So we wait for that, the culmination of that adoption, the culmination of that experience. It awaits the future along with ultimate conformity to Christ's image as the ultimate Adam, the last Adam, tied in with the restoration of creation and the restoration of the purposes of the family and humanity in creation. Here's the second thing we could say. We already said this, but the gospel is the primary way of being fruitful and multiplying in the world. That's what it means now to be fruitful and multiply in the world. Yes, have kids. Do that. If you're married, you ought to have kids. That's part of God's purpose and natural purpose for, for marriage. And yet, even with natural offspring, that doesn't mean you've ultimately bared fruit and multiplied. How does that happen? It happens through the gospel. It happens through the new birth. It happens through repentance and faith. You can say this, the family order is consistent through the scripture between husbands and wives and parents and children. 
always the husband leading the family, the wife coming alongside as a helpmate, submitting to him, and then the parents training their children, the children respecting their parents. Training of children is consistently laid on parents, especially the primarily the father. And training of children is still a primary vehicle for discipleship. It's not ultimate, but it is a primary one. Natural family is still held high in honor, though its function will cease in the new heavens and the new earth. What about bigger picture conclusions and implications or observations that we can draw from our whole series? These last three weeks, if we walked through looking at the biblical story of the family. Well, you can say this. The biblical storyline begins and ends with marriage and family. We have a marriage in the Garden of Eden. We have Christ marrying his church in the new heavens and the new earth. There's a family in Eden, and there's a family, Christ family in the new heavens and the new earth. The, this biblical storyline begins and ends with marriage and family. One family is Adam's family and is biological. We're all part of that family. The other family is Christ's family and spiritual. We're not necessarily all part of that family. The only way you get to be part of that family is through God working through the Spirit to cause regeneration so that you can have repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And we can see, as we saw this morning, the storyline transitions right at Christ. It transitions from the biological family being central to the spiritual family being central. Again, God's plan and purpose for the family, the natural family, is always held high and maintained through Scripture, though eventually it will cease in the new family in Christ, in the new heavens, and the new earth. So how do we apply all that? Okay, that's a bunch of stuff, and that's a bunch of principles. Great, they're all true. They're from the Scriptures. How do we apply that? What does that mean for us? Here's some application. View the natural family highly and honor it. And honor God's plans and purposes and order for it. That's what God wants you to do from the scriptures. That's what he wants. He designed it. He designed it in a particular way. You ought to hold the family high and honor it. But the correlation to that is what? Do not view the natural family as ultimate. Since Christ's family transcends it. The natural family is honorable but it is passing away. Christ's family will last forever. Now you think about that, it's like, well, wait a minute. What about my family? My family is a mess. It hasn't matched that order at all, or it's fallen short in many, many ways. And we can all say that about our families, both from our side and other people's side. Things that we do and things that have been done to us. So what do you do? Well, first, the question is, have you been born from above into Christ's family? No matter what your natural family looks like, the first question is, have you been born from above? Have you experienced the new birth? Because no matter what your family looks like, your natural family, the question is, are you related to Christ? Are you related to God's family? And if you're not, you need to repent and place your faith in Jesus Christ. You need to realize, yes, I'm a sinner. I've sinned in my family. My family has sinned against me, but I'm destined for God's wrath unless I lay down arms, surrender living for myself, and place my trust in Jesus Christ, who has died for his family and only for his family. 
to bring them into the new heavens and the new earth. So that's the first question. Have you surrendered? Have you repented and placed your faith in Christ? And are you following him? And are you connected? Are you connected with his family? It's not just an individual affair. That'd be a weird thing, wouldn't it? If you think about your natural family and, um, you know, you got a kid maybe that says, yeah, I'm part of that family, but I don't ever spend time with them. I don't even, um, you know, yeah, I kind of like them. I spend some time with them sometimes, but, you know, I really like to keep my connection with them kind of off in a distance. If we are a family in Christ, if that's what the church is, then you ought to go public. Yeah, I'm part of Christ's family. I'm with them. They're a bunch of weirdos, but I'm, I'm with them because Christ has made us one. Because of what? What? Because of the gospel and how precious the gospel is that Christ died and loved his family so that he could be our older brother and we could be his brothers and sisters, which means we ought to love one another passionately. Now, switching back, what, what, what of my natural families? the mess, uh, and it is a mess, and I know I've sinned against others, and they've sinned against me. Well, here's the thing. You still hold God's design for the family high, even if your family doesn't match that. And you live out your role in your family as best you can, depending on the grace that's in Christ. Knowing that you fail each and every day, you go back to Christ and the grace that's in Christ through the gospel, and yet you you also depend on his transforming power through the Holy Spirit to live out your role in your family as best you can. And the reality is you can only control you. You can only control your role in the family. You can't control how other people are responding to you in the family. You can't control whether they're living up to their roles and God's plan for the family, but you can control yours as best as you can dependent on the power of Christ. And the amazing thing is, through the gospel, your family can transform. Not a guarantee, but it can. Because God loves the family, even as he, the family of Christ is ultimately transcendent. That's the story of the family, Genesis to Revelation. Obviously, there's more that could be said, but we see that God loves the family. He has his plans for the natural family. But the family that is in Christ Jesus is transcendent. Let's pray. Lord, we know that we fall short in our families. We know we fall short in our vision of the natural family. Lord, please forgive us. Please forgive us in the ways in which we have not honored the family. We've not honored the role in the family. We've not done what we should. Lord, help us. Help us to hold it high. Help us to love our family. Help us to fulfill our roles. And yet, Lord, also we thank you more especially for the family that we have in Christ, in you. We thank you for your redemption. We thank you for the adoption. We look forward to the future of adoption that you will, rest, you will take us to be with yourself for all eternity. We long for that. We look forward to that. Help us to bear fruit and multiply by proclaiming the gospel to those around us. And Spirit, would you work? Because unless you move, unless you work, Unless you blow where you wish, new birth doesn't happen. So we ask that you would rescue more children, adopt more into God's family. And Lord, help us to be agents of that by your grace. Lord, I pray um, that you would help us to understand the family, understand how valuable it is, and yet hold your family in Christ more valuable. We ask these things, we pray them in Christ's name. Amen.